Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Hi, welcome to the NASCAR NBC Podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, and back at the NBC Sports Charlotte studio doing the podcast in person, which means we have another special guest who was here the last time we taped this in person. It's Parker Kligerman, Charlotte resident and Xfinity Series driver and very busy man. So thanks for being here. Charlotte resident. No, no, still got a Connecticut license. Okay. And <laughs> yeah, uh, actually, yeah. for in between, tax purposes, I don't want to like. Do, well, no, I take anybody. I take Charlotte resident. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, I actually have to figure all that out. So you know what? I don't even want to go too deeply into that. I've actually spent ninety percent of my time probably down here this year. And my place, though, that I had down here, the lease, I I may have messed up the timing of my lease. <laughs> go, go me by one month. So I've had to find interim housing. Oh, um, you have? Okay. Yeah. So the last time you did this, yeah, your apartment was like a half mile away. Yes. So no longer. No, that, that okay. a couple weeks ago I had to move out of that. Definitely <laughs> messed up the lease timing. <laughs> and so that that was a fun time. But a mutual friend of ours has taken me in okay, good. For, for a couple of weeks and then let me leave my stuff there until I get an art place for next year, probably around March-ish. So. Right. Strike me as somebody, if you had to depend on the kindness of strangers... You're going to be okay. I or in this hopefully. case, friends. Yes. You're going to be fine, Parker. <laughs> Appreciate um, it. And uh, we're taping this on a Tuesday because, as you told us the last time you did this back in March, Mondays are your busiest day of the week, right? So what, yep. what was yesterday like for you coming out of the uh, Roval weekend? It wasn't terrible, you know, in terms of busyness. And that's actually shifted a, a little bit. You know, Tuesdays have become fairly busy as well. As we as we had success, we've gained simulator time with GM and that sort of thing. And so, you know, those have shifted more Tuesdays and we try to do same on Mondays to be prepped for the time that we get at the GM sim. So, you know, it just expands a little bit as you have more success, which is which is great. It's a good problem to have. Uh, but yesterday, basically, you know, spend the morning looking back at the race. Uh, I watched the race broadcast, look at our onboard, look at the SMT, do all my post-race notes, all the things I can remember about that place, what was good and what was bad. And then that's when we you know, heading to our meeting at one thirty in the afternoon, which is between RCR and Colleague, and everyone kind of discussed the weekend. And then we jumped up to the sim that afternoon, did sim for a couple hours to get ready for the sim session we have this afternoon at GM. So it's... <laughs> you have another sim session this afternoon? Yeah, so the way that works for us is, like, there's a static, you know, we have a static sim. I'll just let, you, let everyone in. So we have a static sim up at RCR that is the Xfinity static sim. Colleague uses, we use, RCR uses a little bit. And then you have the GM sims, which are the DILs, we call them driver and loop, which are the motion sims, and they just got a third one online, and so we've been able to get some time, and especially making the playoffs, right? Making the playoffs, you become a valuable entity 
for Chevy, and so you know we were able to gain more time. So we don't get a ton, and we don't want to waste it when we're there. So it's sort of like, hey, can we pre-prep? at the static, at least get within a box or window so we don't show up there and we're spending 30 minutes trying. Because a lot of times what happens now in the sim world, especially in the Xfinity side, is it's, it's really, you know, I've, I've explained this a little bit, because the cup cars have gone away from the tire, we run. And the tire being the most important part of sim. Like, how you model that tire, how realistic you think that tire is modeled is the difference between doing it right or doing it wrong. And that's the grip level, the lap time you have, and then that is the, you know, just overall feel of it, right? And so without the cup cars running that, we don't, we're years from having data on these tires. So it's becoming fully just human feel, basically, huh. is what's deciding it. And if you can imagine like two lines running parallel when we had data, and now those lines are getting further and further apart and come back together and further and further apart and come back together because it's all human based. So we all spend a lot of time and effort correlating real life to what's you know you feel in the sim and then doing it again afterwards and then making sure that when you're going to have time on a dil sim that you go and take that 30 minutes maybe of figuring out the tire so that you you don't waste your time with a dil want to make changes where you can feel the changes better as a driver and the dil is this afternoon yeah okay yeah, yeah. and it's that's a big new tech center yep. that's right next yep. to Murray's Forest. <laughs> so i'm probably not even supposed to talk about it i don't know <laughs> No one's ever given me instruction. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is cool because DIL is like what, you know, when you're an IndyCar or an mm -hmm. F1, I mean, that's the nomenclature. That's, what, that's the term everybody uses when they're talking about the best simulator. So yeah. Nice little window. I am torn. And I am torn on the sim stuff. I mean, it's incredibly valuable in the current state of what we do. Um, you, you really couldn't be competitive about it. Uh, it would be really hard to be competitive about it. And, you know, very thankful for the time that GM gives us and the support they give us to do this with the way the sport is designed right now. But it, it does feel at times like we've gone, you know, there was a time period in this sport where we just were at the track far too often, driving in circles for no reason, right? Doing multiple practices and everything. And we've condensed so far down. Yeah. That, like we just don't. Yeah. And I've made this joke on here before. We don't drive race cars, right? Yeah, like, right. <laughs> we spend right. a lot of time so in sim. last time, yeah. And I, I struggle with the sim because it's not, it's not great content. Is there is no content around it, you know? We're and mostly we're not allowed to show anything in there. So, personally, as a fan, which I am at core, I've always talked about this of motorsports and of NASCAR and F1. I'm a fan, and if you're doing something that we can't talk about, really, and we can't show, then to me, it's actually a valueless proposition in the sport because this sport is entirely about entertainment. And I know that the manufacturers, I I love their technical help. You know, they have to be involved, but I struggle at times with, you know, I struggle at times with stuff like this that's so clandestine and, and just hidden. And like I think about, you know, if you go back 50 years, if you had a new motor or aero advantage or something you could palpable, you could see, you could talk about it or, or eventually there'd be stories about. That's never going to happen in the sim world. <laughs> yeah. It's just yeah. numbers, zeros and ones and and it's virtual. And so. You know, I've said things like we should all, the manufacturers should come together and have like each week, we should have like a midweek deal where you have a competition of who can get closest to the, the pole lap time. <laughs> and they nominate a driver and a team that week and they go and they just, and no one knows. But so like, it's not about going fastest because you could just turn up the grip and go fast. It's like who gets their stuff closest, like anything to have some content around it. Because I, I am someone who believes that there is still there is not enough content around the sport. There, there basically never could be enough 
with the way the, the way content's consumed this day and age, and that I just I struggle mightily with like the feel. I as a competitor, I'm like, this is so cool. This yeah. is such a cool thing to be a part of. But then I can't. I, as a fan, I'm like, well. I can't talk about that. I can't show like it. This is the great and secret show behind the scenes of how teams and drivers are actually competing with each yes. other, but you can't. But really you can't talk about it. You can't show it. it. And we yeah. we talk about sim, and we don't show what that is. And then fans are like, "What is the sim?" And they think it's iRacing. And it's like, "Well, it's not iRacing. <laughs> it's a little it's more, more technical. It's a little more technical than that." But yes, you can use iRacing. And so I just think it's so muddied. I I really would like to see as a sport where we could be far more innovative, have a lot more midweek content and utilize these tools to create that midweek content, whether it's, you know, competition like that, or I've had the ideas of, like, the, we talked about on the podcast last year of the, the midweek qualifying shows. Like, yeah, yeah. Something yeah. To, to talk and to put out there and to drive more value in the sport because, you know, I just think we couldn't do that enough. The simulator games competition actually is fascinating. I had never <laughs> thought about that. But my next question would be, because the software or whatever is so proprietary and it's d mm. could you equalize <laughs> could you do like a balance of performance between each manufacturer well but it wouldn't matter so because you're trying to get closest percentage wise to whatever you believe the poll app is going to be and maybe the f you do two competitions whoever gets closest percentage wise to what the actual poll app is and then what the actual fastest lap in the race is right okay and my point of that is like then it doesn't matter what you run on or how you do it or whatever you got to have a driver drive it I think we all basically use the same software. Okay. The other thing, it's all built on the same software platform, which is the whole other thing. I think they're all basically using the same things. Like I've driven different manufacturer sims, and they all kind of feel the same. So <laughs> I'm like, wait, it's got to be the same stuff. So I mean, I'm not the tech guy to ask, but I, I, my my reasoning of that is like it's not a competition of going fastest. So you don't balance performance or anything. It's who can do the math and have the human correlate that you know drive it correctly to get closest and you wouldn't know who won till the weekend's over but it'd be like hey who won the sim competition on sunday night well actually it was toyota toyota was closest by within three percent of the poll and they were then two percent of the <laughs> fastest lap of the race so it's less about performance than simulation like actually yeah. like getting to be like real life could be a lot of effort for no gain the other side of it is like they call the fans be like well that's the lamest thing ever i don't give a <laughs> shit. and i'll be like yeah i'm sorry uh <laughs> <laughs> that was a dumb idea. We probably should just yeah. go do filming. You know, filming days. Like F1 just increased their filming days by 50%. Why don't we have filming days? Yeah. You know, I'd love to take a race car and just go do a massive burnout down the streets of some town. No one does that. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. I mean, I'm yeah. all about like trying your ideas, Parker, because they're <laughs> usually good ones. <laughs> so in addition to Sim, you've also got the Money Lap podcast that you do with Landon Castle. You're taping that later today, so yep. I appreciate you squeezing me in. Oh, absolutely. Everybody go listen to the Money Lap as well. Appreciate it. Great new podcast uh, that you started since your last time here. But obviously, want to talk primarily, or start out talking primarily about NASCAR Cup Series. Mm -hmm. And A.J. Allmendinger wins the round of 12 finale at the Charlotte Motor Speedway, Roval gives this emotional interview to Marty Snyder. You've won some big ones. You cried that entire cooldown lap. Why was this one so emotional? Because you don't know when you're going to do it again. Um, I, I love all the men and women at Call Racing so much. Uh, first of all, out of my beautiful wife, my new baby boy. I usually give these checkered flags away, but... I'm going to have to wrap this around Arrow, uh, my mom and dad, all my family and friends. Um, those people see how much anguish and how much I put it on my shoulders when we're struggling. And 
I mean, it just means the world. Like, I, I hate crying right now, but it, you just, it's a freaking cup race, man. You don't know when it's ever going to happen again. Let's go! Come on! I saw you comment on that on Instagram, just like, wow, that was, <laughs> that was clearly from the heart. And I think there were a lot of layers to what, what AJ was going through there. Yep. Uh, obviously, he says, you know, you never know when you're going to win your last one. But I think a lot of us are wondering, given his is future that? is unsettled, did mm -hmm. he know that that might be his last one? We, give us your take on everything we saw from Allmendinger during the race and after in that interview. Well, I texted him and said, hey, man, you were the class of the field. Congrats. And that, uh, that was a very real interview. You know, and I was just like, man, that's the stuff. I love that. Because it was real, and it was real emotion and crying on the, you know, the cool-down lap because this is a guy that – I always talk about him. You know, you go back 20 years ago, he was one of the greatest American talents in all race car drivers in America, yeah. um, you know, and, and has gone on to have just such a wild career of yeah. open wheel and stock cars and yeah. <laughs> some of the biggest just teams Just to put it in context, because I don't know if people realize this, but in 2006, Red yeah. Bull decided AJ was so good – that they said, hey, we know you're really good in open-wheel cars, you're dominating champ car series, but we just want to take you and thrust you into NASCAR because we believe you can do it with no stock car experience yep. at all. Oh, he was, the, and that was, that was not surprising. If you go back a couple years before that, he had a folklore about it. I've talked about this, where he had a folklore about him of, if you were a young driver in the early 2000s, like myself, 2005, 2006, as he was just at his peak in champ car, people when you were going to skip barber and these lower open wheel series it was like they talked about everyone and then aj omni <laughs> <laughs> it was like aj omni is the greatest single talent in all of america at the time and and you know i think he was in a new in a different era he'd have been on his way to formula one you know yeah. or something like that and he's american and he stayed in america and and we're glad to have him but then you know this whole nascar thing happened and i think if you look at that it's my old theory about just drivers go where the the funding is right. If Champ or if IndyCar was still the biggest thing in 2006 compared to NASCAR, you know Jimmy Johnson, Jeff Gordon, and all these guys would have been in IndyCar, right? Like that's just the way it works. But NASCAR was biggest, so that's where he go. You take the best talent, the most money, and say, hey, this is where we're gonna go with it. Yeah. And you know he did. And so I don't know if it's been everything he hoped or everything you know has worked out exactly how he had planned. It's been such a up and down year. And I look at him as such an inspiration because I'm like, hey. I've got a weird story. <laughs> he's got a weird story. Talk about spending a year on the sidelines yeah. or whatever. Yeah, he's, he's definitely experienced that. So yeah. and the funniest part is I've known him since I was 13 years old on the internet, sim racing with him. So, you know, we've had just a, a really odd association through the whole time. But I, I consider him a friend and a mentor and so on. I definitely am inspired by in a lot of respects. And so, you know, back to your point, he, him being in cup even right now in a competitive ride is – pretty wild i mean i texted him last year when they announced it what was he's 40 what is he now 41 well i remember texting him being like can you believe you're going back <laughs> at this age and like what i said just what an incredible story man like you fought all the way back like that's awesome i think he's a really cool story and now knowing all the stuff that's going on behind the scenes with colleague and you know some of the financial decisions they're having to make it's really unfortunate that a guy at that level they can't find a a financial reason to give him whatever it takes because he has made that race team and what it is their whole mantra of trophy hunting i'd say what 90 percent of their trophies come from him i go back to the same thing as kyle bush when kyle, if kyle bush was asking for 400 million dollars to me it's whatever he needs the sport needs to find a way to support those level stars because they are that they worth that 
But for whatever reason, the sport right now is a position where it can't support that level of talent, and uh, it's, it's unfortunate. So the first time you raced against AJ was almost 20 years ago? On oh, Saturday? I guess, yeah. I mean, we were – I must have been 12 or 13. He made fun of my – by high pitched voice at the time, all the time. Um, <laughs> we we had a mutual friend who I'd met on the internet, sim racing back in the day, and then we used to, yeah, we used to just play Champ Car Formula One F1 2001 modded Champ Car edition. Uh, we'd play that for hours and hours and hours. And you could do it online. Yeah, online, and yeah, okay. we had voice yeah. chat, Rever, and and then for a while we didn't believe it was actually him, <laughs> until the buddy, the mutual friend we had, went to the. Cleveland Grand Prix and there was tickets waiting for him and everything and he met AJ and he's like it's real <laughs> <laughs> alright well as somebody who's been competing against them then for two decades real or in virtual world yep. what makes him so good at road courses so I'm going to steal something from Landon Castle and please go listen to the Money Lap podcast because he he was his teammate last year and he saw a lot of this and I, I didn't quite understand and I've now gotten to be in welcome and seen some of the setup stuff and, and being able to actually drive some of the stuff he was driving. But Landon really pointed out to me and he'll, he'll go deeper in this than I can. But basically what makes AJ so good is how precision he is under braking of a stock car and a, which you need, why that makes, why that maybe sounds dumb. It's like, well, of course all top race drivers precision. What I mean by that is, a stock car at 3,400 pounds or more has an immensely long braking zones at road courses, longer than any form of race car in the world. It, you'll never, it, you'll never experience something like this. Like turn one at Indy Road Course is got to be one of the longest braking zones in the history of the world uh, in any form of racing. <laughs> and same with turn five at Road America. And so you spend an immense amount of time under the brakes. Well, because of that, a lot of the drivers, you know, it's very hard to get on the brakes, and then cr go for such a long period of time of judging what your main speed is going to be at the apex. And so you get a lot of variation in that braking zone. Maybe it's you start to slow at certain decel rate and then let it speed up because you think you've overslowed, then back and forth. And so this happens a lot. And the way to really make speed and be perfect is to just have the best, most consistent, precisioned decel rate to the min speed point and then drive off from there. AJ beats everyone in that decel rate in having a precisioned decel rate that just is when he's on he's on and when he's at his tent so my i used to have a racing coach used to tell me when you're at your 10 tenths no one can beat you when he's at his 10 tenths no one can beat him he finds a way you know when he's on and he finds the right feel that's what he just makes an immense amount of time and so it doesn't really matter how the car's set up you know in the xfinity series he historically ran some pretty soft setups that allow the car to have a ton of drive off, but it can be floppy and that sort of stuff. But it doesn't matter because he's so precisioned. So that's how he makes speed above everyone else, and that's what makes him so good at road courses. He was definitely class of the field at the Roval, although he also got helped out by the fact, I think, that having the, the brakes come back with cautions at the end of Stage 1, Stage 2, that seemed to have an impact because you had guys chasing points or in the playoffs. It's not to say AJ yep. wouldn't have won this race anyway, but it definitely unfolded in a way that was that was beneficial to him. We were talking before we got started, and you had a chance just to bop around Charlotte Motor Speedway as a fan on Sunday unexpectedly and this is the final road course in year two of the next gen been a lot of discussion about how has the next gen run not just road courses but short tracks as well but you were saying earlier that you felt like you would still make the case for the way next gen's performed this year yeah I think I mean from a higher point of view if I'm a really educated race fan and I'm a really or I'm a racer I see the product I'm like, oh that's struggling to pass like it's hard to pass I get that but if you just remove yourself from that knowledge base 
and just look at the, the cars running around the racetrack from a higher point of view. And I, I went around to all these different spots, and I went to some of these little VIP spots. It's all these people watching. And, and you look at six cars running in a train. Now, what I know is that that's because they're all running basically such identical cars and setups and everything. It's so hard for them to pass, and there's not enough tire fall off, and the, there's too much tire grip and that sort of thing. But to the uneducated, to the to the higher point of view person, they're like, man, this is awesome. Look at those cars <laughs> that run so close together. This is crazy. You know, Talladega and Daytona is a great example. You know, I was talking to a bunch of cup drivers after Talladega, and they were like, oh, it's terrible. You can't pass forever. And I was like, yeah, but... I'm just telling you, if you watch that without the sound on at, at a bar anywhere in the country and you see cars running three wide, it looks amazing. <laughs> like, and you've watched you guys run two by two for 80 laps. It looks insane. I'm like, this just does. So to me, that's a good thing because it's like the thing you're trying to sell to people that don't drive race cars, which there's not many of, is good. It's just how can we make it even better, right, to what we knew passing-wise. And it did look tough to pass, and it did look – you know, like you get cars running in a train, and you get a car. I saw a couple times that like Christopher Bell went to the back and forever, and they really struggled to make headway unless they had a tire advantage. Reddick, I mean, he had tire advantage. He ripped through them the second he had a tire advantage. He stopped, mm-hmm. and I think you, you know, he was definitely one of the top three best cars. So that looked frustrating. And I know as a driver, personally being in there, I'd be livid. Like <laughs> if I'm Reddick, and I'm head, I'm got one of the fastest cars, and then I get put in sixth, and I cannot move past sixth. I'm sitting there going like, "What happened? Why? This is so annoying. We got to change this, you know, that sort of thing." But uh, at least from a fan perspective and getting to run around there, I sat around. I looked at all these cars that look good. The teams, you can tell, you know, just the level of presentation from the le- the Cup Series in terms of those 36 cars that are out there, or actually a little more than 36 this weekend, you know, is a high level, um, which is always a judge for me. Is like, look at the equipment, look at the paint schemes, look at the level of preparation and and display. It's all good. So it's like, okay, all the underpinnings are here. We just need to make them race a little better. So is there anything NASCAR should consider doing tire wear-wise? Does <sighs> Man, it sound I like no, that's where the – I have no idea. I, honestly, I've sort of removed myself from those discussions with this thing because I, I don't fully understand. I mean, this is probably annoying for some people listening to be like, wait, you're not paying attention to this. But, like, I haven't fully dived into, like, why do we not have a skinnier tire? Or what what's the hold-up here? Or, like, why can't we remove more grip from these things? Or You know, I, I really have generally just – let myself focus on the Xfinity side. Got another job. Yeah, and and even, you know, it's not really anything I can even bring in the TV side. So it's just not, if it happens, if they, you know, if the people that are trying to figure it out, figure it out, awesome. I haven't driven them enough to give a really honest opinion as to what's going on. I've listened to everyone. I consume all the content around that, but I don't have a valid, I don't think I have a, a great opinion because I just don't have the information above everyone else. So I think, you know, you hear the other drivers and them talk about it, and I don't know where it stands. Yeah, understandable. Yeah. But certainly want to get your analysis on a higher level of the playoffs themselves. Well, two things I want to get your thoughts on. One, Kyle Larson's comeback after wrecking in practice and being very beside himself to the point where he actually hung around the shop on Saturday at Hendrick Motorsports for a few hours. You know, upset at myself that I crashed, obviously. But I was more upset that all those mechanics and people probably been looking forward to the only Saturday at home all year long and and they're spending it at the shop till three in the morning so I was just embarrassed and and upset and yeah so I spent you know a few hours over there. Kyle Larson said they were at the shop till three in the morning Jeez. preparing that backup car because 
the way na- the NASCAR backup car world these mm-hmm. th- works these days. One, they're not fully prepared, I think, every week. And then, two, it takes extra work to get them in. If you want to get it right, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So what's your take on that as a driver? Dustin Long um, did the reporting on this and, and learned that Larson actually went over to the shop. But, you know, Dustin was making the point when he was asking questions about it. You know, Kyle Larson admits this. He's not a mechanically inclined driver. So, one, he probably wouldn't be able to help much anyway. But, two, the team's probably not, even if, your driver was a mechanical whiz. They're probably not going to let you get near the car anyway. So what's that like as a driver to make that kind of mistake and then try to pump up your crew or improve morale as they're trying to repair the problem that you created to put you back on track? <laughs> I've definitely been there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we all have. If you've driven race cars at this level, you've definitely been there. I think it's, yeah, it's the emotional support side. It's the idea of like, hey, we're in this together. And, and it's the message of, look, I know I messed up, right? And I'm not just going to go scamper off and not live up to my mistake and, you know, not own it and be there with you guys to say like, Hey, look, I'm, we're in this together. It's a good message and show support when your pit crew makes a mistake. Right. And, you know, I've had it this year. I sat down with my crew guys after the race and he came to apologize. And I said, look, those mistakes happen. I've done them. We've all done them, but the best thing we can do is focus on the next week. Right. And I appreciate the apology. We're in this together. You know, I know you're going to make mistakes. I'll make mistakes. So support each other when we happens, that happens, right? And like, that's part of working with a team, group of people. Like, these are humans. And the humans putting together your race car are the difference between you running fast or not. And, you know, at the end of the day, they want to know that, you know, you respect them, that they that you, you know, have a, an understanding of what their job is and how hard or, or difficult it can be and an understanding of, like, what your actions can do to cause them to have extra work, right, or not. That's a great message from him. I don't think he's the first guy to stand up and give a speech and a rah-rah speech, right? Yeah. <laughs> Kyle yeah but yeah. I think that's a pretty cool message for a guy who drives a lot of race cars and is all over the world doing that and is such a high-level elite talent to say, hey, look, I'm not above the fact that you guys make this happen and, and I'm going to be here to support you when I make a mistake. So good on him. He, of course, now is on to the round of eight. Brad Keselowski was the only guy who got bumped out. Tyler Reddick, who, of course, won the pole and, and finished top 10 at the Roval, he bumps in. As we look at the round of eight now, Parker, and try to figure out who's going to make the championship four, I think there's a lot of focus, obviously, on Martin Truex Jr., who had another mediocre finish at the Roval. I mean, some of that, I think, was <laughs> they were chasing stage points. Yeah. But James Small, again, was talking to Dustin long afterward and said, look, we knew this, this race in Talladega were going to suck because yep. we're just not good at them right now <laughs> but but we're good at the next three you know i love that team yeah <laughs> so uh and and james small made this point to dustin that hey in 2017 we won the championship with the best average finish maybe this year we're going to win it with the worst average finish because their best finish of the playoffs through what are six races is 17th i saw that yeah no top 15s for martin tricks jr the regular season champion martin tricks jr can he still make phoenix it's a testament to i know we said this before but playoff points right like yeah, the, right. the idea that there is a huge value to these things to getting the best overall season car to the, the championship to get the opportunity to win a championship knowing what i know about that team and I say they're the funniest and, like, the best team because you hang out with them and you would never know. Like, right before they won the regular season championship, I'm hanging out with them. And I'm like, this is a top level, highest level there is race team. And they're just sitting in there joking, making fun of each other. Like, and just They're pretty loose. They're pretty loose. Mm-hmm. And they always have been. And that comes from the Cole Pern days to, you know, James Small now. And I think Martin, you know, he's a big part of that. Uh, Drew Herring, who's the spotter, is a big part of that. And that just the whole group, so loose and so funny. So, like, to me, it wouldn't be surprising 
that they go have this horrid set of races and then next week, you know, win. I wouldn't be surprised at all because it doesn't I, – I loved Martin in the race when he said uh, – they were telling him about the owner's deal. And he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Because <laughs> like, the like, car got knocked out of the owner's deal. I know, but he's, which he is doesn't crazy, care. But yeah, he's he doesn't like, care. I just drive. Yeah. I'm here. I'm just driving. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's amazing. Man, he's remarkable like that. So spring this year, when he sat on the pole at Darlington, that lap he did, I mean, he threw it up on the wall in three and four. The amount of confidence that took and trust and just knowledge and everything to just do that and win the poll that he did the way he did it. And knowing a little bit of that use, there's drivers. Like I would consider myself someone who prepares and spends a lot of time SMT and SIM and whatever. And then there's drivers that, that don't have to do that and don't do it. And I maybe put him towards the, that latter category <laughs> to just show up and do that. I was like, damn, that guy's yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> and now he starts the round of eight again with those playoff points. It resets to his benefit. Who are your championship for? Do you have him among it? Is it Larson, Hamlin? I got Hamlin for sure. Yeah. It's his year. It's always Danny Hamlin's year until it until it's not. Um, I guess Byron would be in that. William Byron, yeah. that's a, I mean, I think it's a lock. I mean, the guy, he's probably who you have to go beat. You know, I think Larson, I could see him there. And then I got to see the points, actually. I, I'm trying to remember them. Do you have them right here? I do, yeah. All right, actually. let's let's see. Because I got to pick a fourth, and I am struggling with that. Because I, I wouldn't be surprised to see the 19 car go and win Vegas <laughs> and just be part of the championship. Okay, well, that was easy. I wouldn't be surprised to see him win Homestead. I wouldn't be surprised to see him win Martinsville. I'm going to say something crazy. Yeah? I think Blaney. Who is 10 points out in eighth right now. Vegas. If he can have a Vegas, if he could do – big things at Vegas, he could knock out Larson or any one of these four that, that falter. Reddick, Homestead, obviously, he's got to circle that. I think he just needs that. He needs Homestead. Bell has probably got to do what he does, which is be super consistent and most likely pull something crazy out. And then Busher is just going to have to – I think he's going to have to bet on someone faltering. All right. How's that sound? So Blaney, I like it. Yeah. I, like I think I just – I have a feeling. I don't know why, but Vegas – it's always sponsored by Penzl, and those, those are all Penzl cars. <laughs> that's right. That's my fault. That's, that's the entirety of my uh, research. <laughs> Penske tends to come up with, like, home field, home track advantages uh, <laughs> in those situations, I feel like. So, yeah. yeah, I could see that. So there's a lot of focus on the cup race, but obviously the Xfinity race at the Roval, terrific. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, maybe not so much for you, but, like, you created a lot of the drama. You were part of a lot of that drama. And mm -hmm. a lot of it was that last lap where Daniel Hemrick needed two points, mm -hmm. and he had you and Kaz Grala in right front. in front of him. Yeah. And so he just missed nipping you guys at the line, so he doesn't advance. Did you know going into that last lap that – no, I that didn't. Was a possibility? No. I didn't know about his situation. I knew he didn't matter to me at least because when I was right behind him in the third stage there, my team said nothing, and so I knew okay, we've got a bigger problem. The bigger problem is probably like the two or the eighteen or something like that. So I just drove by him, and you know, focused on just getting every spot I possibly could on that run, and you know, in that last ditch effort to get the twenty six, I just was like, I have to do this because what if I cross that line in fifth, and the the 18 or the two is spun out behind me and suddenly I'm in, right? That's, that was my thought. Yeah. And so I just lunged at it and it was actually fairly, cl very clean lunge in a lot of ways, <laughs> but the 26 nailed me on the exit, which I didn't expect when he hopped the curb. And that 
set us sideways and the 10 got almost got to us. And then afterwards I found out like, oh, if he had passed you both, he gets in. And so I had no idea. I was talking to two team afterwards uh, yesterday and they were like, man, we were on the intercom being like, Parker, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> so yeah, that would have yeah, been awkward, I, mean, I guess, in the halls of RCR. Yeah. yeah well, that, that would have been fine. But it's, it's you know, you got to race your individual race at that point. But I, I didn't I didn't fully understand exactly what was going on because I, I didn't need to know. I, I just I needed to just pass every car that was in front of me and hope for the best, right? Yeah. And it just didn't pan out for us. You know, we, what I thought about yesterday, or I mean Saturday, was we had a really, really good day. Like, really good. First, I had not been there since 2019 Cup. Practice 12, qualify 6th, be right there, stage points in both stages, you know, be a little loose in stage 1, but fix it, become a top 3 fastest car from state, probably lap 22 onwards. We did everything we possibly could, but we needed an exceptional day. <laughs> and I didn't expect that. Being one point out, I was like, when we qualified six, I was like, this is a lock. Lock it in. I'll see it, Vegas. Like, <laughs> in my head, we were in. And But I just did not expect, you know, every – I saw or heard Jeff Burton on the broadcast, but, like, every one of these teams brought their A game. I mean, everyone did. The 10, probably one of his best road courses of his whole life. The 2 – did exactly what he had to do and held on to a car that wasn't great in stage one to get the stage points he needed. And then the one, I mean, he just showed up on a big way and just nailed it. And yeah. I was like, huh, everyone was really, really good. Sam was exceptional, and it was going to take exceptional to get in. And so that's pretty cool for the Xfinity Series at yeah. least. Well, and again, cool for you. I know you get eliminated, but you finished sixth at the Roval. You finished second at Texas. Mm -hmm. Bristol, it was a mechanical thing, but you were running so well up yep. until that point. Bubba Wallace, after his race on Sunday, he said immediately he was thinking back to Texas uh, when he got out of the car. Yeah. Was that something you were thinking about as well? That restart, like, oh, that could have been <laughs> the moment. Yeah, I do. But I also think like Bristol, like you just can't. You know, we had a top three car at Bristol. Bristol could have been a win. Honestly, the way we, how fast we were at the end of stage one uh, was just wild. And so I just think that's one that gets away. And I think, you know, from that point onwards, yeah, it was up to me to, to find a way in. And I didn't. You know, that's sort of like the Larson thing. Like sometimes the driver just has to, to find a way, right? And I didn't. But I'm not going to say that we haven't learned a ton. You know, we've consistently – for the last better part of two months, been one of the top five, top three fastest cars in the series or best cars. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot to take from it in that sense. I did think about Texas in that a little bit. Yeah. And then I stopped myself and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa hey, bud. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, I, to me, where it really got away from me, and I, I said this to the team, I was very open about this in the meeting. I said, look, when I showed up and I went 12th in practice, I was pretty good, but I knew there was speed in me. I was like, right off the bat. This is, and the reason being, the Roval is one of the trickiest places we go to because it has very few like identification markers for braking, for turning points, for speed. That sounds wild because there's so much around there, but it really isn't. They don't have brake markers. They don't have a lot of identifying factors. So you have multiple corners that are entirely based on your feel. And so that's a really hard thing to, for us as race drivers to do right, right away. Like That's the hardest type of corner. Turn three and four, five and six, those are entirely feel-based. You have to just guess what's the right amount of speed to throw into the corner at that time and hope mm. it sticks and then hit the perfect tracks and circle to turn it down and decrease your speed to the, the apex of the second corner i felt like in qualifying i rose up to that level a little bit more but it still wasn't enough right and by in stage one we were super loose and i did a decent job but when we restarted in stage two and suddenly i 
I figured this one turn uh, out really well in turn eight, this one thing, and the light bulb went off. And the next lap, they go, you're the fastest car on the racetrack. And I was thinking, when it all got done, I go, if we could have just, at lap 22, and I figured it out, restarted the weekend, <laughs> I'm going to go have the weekend the one had. Like, I guarantee it. In my mind, I'm going to go be the fastest car here. I'm going to win the pole. I'm going to win both stages because we're going to stay out for the stage points. And I'm going to give us a hell of a chance. But I needed 20, I needed 10 laps in practice, a qualifying lap, and 20 laps in the race. Yeah. That's where I failed as a driver. Now, going back on my notes and everything, I'm like, I could, be, I could win that place for sure. But it goes to like the, the practice, 15 minutes of practice. you got to be on it and go, go, go. And it's, that's one thing I think when I looked at this year, what I really underestimated was being not in these cars for as long as I have in low downforce package. You know, people ask me, what's the difference between the first half of the year and the second half and why we got so much better? And I was like, a lot was on me. Just literally understanding these cars, trusting them, feeling what they need, and then that allowing us to really craft the setups to be what you need to go fast. And that's been the biggest unlock. Continually, I was reminded this year of where, like, all right, you just don't have enough experience right now. It sounds crazy because I've been doing this a long time, but, like, in this specific area at the pointy end, you just don't, you didn't have enough experience there. If we could restart today, I'm hard pressed to let the one go win that race. Like, yeah. There's no way. I'm going to find a way. But I didn't have that. So that's where we are. <laughs> <laughs> but that's got to leave you feeling good about 2024. Oh, yeah. I, the confidence level, I talked about confidence the other day and, and uh, on the Money Lap podcast and, and what Blaney showed at Talladega and that onboard and then related it to the most confident driver that's ever lived, which is Iron Senna. But confidence, as I like to say, there's two currencies for race car drivers. There's money, of course, because it takes money to do this, and then second is confidence. And confidence is everything. And I would say if I had a measurable tracker of my confidence, which is something I've actually thought about building, <laughs> is – I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. I would say over the last two months, it's just been on a linear progression up. And, you know, it's continually showed in qualifying and everything and just where I've really started to figure out everything I need to be doing telling the team, them being able to react to what I'm saying, and it's just really built on itself. And so it gives me an immense amount of confidence these last couple of races and then to bring that into 2024 where we're not a fringe playoff, you know, making the playoffs. I want to be the championship favorite, you know, going that year. How would you build a uh, metric that would linearly measure a driver's confidence? Like so, that? you know, I thought about this a little bit. I've been doing some research on confidence because it's a fascinating topic because there's people that believe, obviously, some people are born more confident than others, and obviously it's a learnable skill, right? It's an attribute you can teach yourself uh, in any sort of any vocation, whether it's driving or business or journalism, whatever. Confidence is something you can build and learn. And so because of that, what I wanted to know is like, hey, what are really the factors of like what creates confidence and obviously success, but there's got to be other building blocks than just a result because a result can't be the only thing you build something on because results are really tough. It's got to be performance-based, right? It's got to be something that you can control less than a result. And then what takes it away, right? Which can't just be bad luck, bad results. There's got to be more there. There's got to be chinks in the armor of your performance that you're not realizing that are just sapping away your confidence. And so the way I look at it is like you would probably create some sort of, and someone's probably done this, so it's probably out there, but uh, you would create some sort of way that's like, hey, before the weekend, during you know certain points and periods, you would be asked a certain question, boom, one to five scale, whatever it is. And then over the course of a 33-week season, you would see your confidence go up and down because you just, if you're really honest in those answers, you know, huh. you'll find that you'll, you'll see what helps. And if you can do add a little bit of like, hey, what happened that day? That's going to help you. So that's how I build it. So when we talked in March, you said that I haven't done anything with such a singular focus as this, <laughs> this meaning 
your 2023 Xfinity Series racing season, you've never been as all-in as you were this year. What have you learned after you're doing? I mean, it sounds like it's pretty much paid off. I know you wanted to win the championship this year, <laughs> but now, like you said, you've you've laid the foundation to maybe be a championship contender next year. Yeah, the only thing we haven't done is win a race, um, which I think we can do this week at Vegas or Homestead, easy. So I, I, you know, that would really check the box for me on the year. Finish fifth in points, I'd be that's be a stellar year. But I would say. I've learned a lot about myself, for sure, and I talk about this confidence stuff, and I've just really dived deep into the mental side of driving race cars, which I've, I've actually really enjoyed, and I've found that it's it's not only been helpful in driving race cars, it's just helpful in every area of life, of really starting to understand, you know, what creates performance, what doesn't, how you can, you know, be just in a better mental state all times. Um, so I've actually, I've really enjoyed that. I think that's given me a ton of confidence. But in terms of the singular focus, yeah, I, I've, been all in the whole time and I've seen the result of it and I think what happened from the second half of the year forward was a result of being so involved and so all in and so deep into figuring like okay what do I have to do differently here right and there's there's some really interesting things I learned through the year if you look at my notes and even down to like talk about the mental stuff the mindset what I learned half and I'll be very open about this because I think it's fascinating what I learned is that I was a negative self-talker. So what does that mean? It means I go to make a pass. I don't get it done. I'd be like, oh, Kyle Larson made that pass. You idiot. <laughs> you know, like, or you go, you go, you know, you get a bad restart. Kyle Busch never made that mistake. You suck. You know, like, <laughs> but I would talk to myself that way. And I never even knew it. And in terms of working through this stuff and sort of understanding it, I was able to flip that to the positive where in the last three months, I don't speak negatively to myself. It's, you know, hey, you did that great. You did this well. You did this. Boom, boom, boom. Hey, let's work on this. Let's, you know, it's flipping that. And I would, I have been absolutely shocked in the difference in what happens in the race car. You don't make mistakes. You find ways to make things happen. Their speed, your confidence goes up. And I was just like, wait a second. This is all it took for all these yeah, years. <laughs> yeah. And you didn't even know you were doing Like somebody just Never sat knew. down with you and just sort of drew that out of you by asking you about uh, like, my how do you visualize? How do you do this? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give my sister some credit because she's big on this sort of stuff and human performance. And then I've worked with a sports psychologist for a long time. And, and you know, he and I dived into it this year. And it was really fascinating when that came up. And I just started putting in my notes and then realizing and then making catching myself on the races doing that and then flip into a positive and then suddenly it's oh you you almost won the race oh well that was easy you know like <laughs> because it's amazing what you can do when you all this stuff comes down to split second decisions and split second moments where if your mind is free and open and positive and you know understands and is confident the decisions that you'll make and the, the moves you'll make as opposed to being negative with yourself and i you know i think some of the negative stuff came from i would listen Tyler Reddick is someone who's like very self-deprecating. Larson, the same way. And I'm like, oh, these guys win all these races. They're always self-deprecating. Like maybe that's the way you got to be. AJ, Allmendinger, he's yeah. like that. But I I don't know if that's what they actually tell themselves and that's just their public persona because I think from listening on these radios all the time, you know, doing the TV thing, I heard that all the time and it sort of like reinforced and maybe that's the way I need to, I need to think. And no, it's not for me. So <laughs> I discovered it's not. You're not going to get them. If you want a really negative person uh, yeah. who's going to be really, you know, I'll be self-deprecating. But, you know, if you want someone that's just going to make fun of myself all the time or, you know, be negative about what I'm doing now, I'm, I'm, I've now decided it's not worth it. This psychology discussion is fascinating. Me. And we talked about this. I had Kyle Petty on the podcast last week after Talladega, and we were talking about it relative to Ryan Blaney in the context of, 
you know, here's a guy who's so good on super speedways, which requires this cerebral, like, chess-playing approach. You have to be so good at, like, just plotting out your moves. But he's also the guy who sped on pit road a week earlier at Texas mm -hmm. and seems to, one hand, he's, like, this thinking man's racer who always makes the right move, but he makes these kind of, like, careless errors. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about, how do you get that out of you? And, and KP went into, like, hey, all of these guys should have sports psychology. Oh yeah. Like that's a tool. Mm -hmm. Like and I just presume they all do. They're all getting <laughs> that kind of help. Is that I don't know true? personally, you know, I think some are more secretive about it, whatever. So I I don't personally know what Blaney's uh situation is. I will say that, you know, I saw him at the kickball tournament core of the joy. We played on the same team and I went up to him and I said, Hey look, I'm not just like blowing smoke here, but wait, that onboard with his spotter audio that I found on Twitter, I said what was amazing about that man was that and you probably don't even realize this, but the level of confidence you showed in that your spotter is telling you to do something, and you're like, nah, I'm going to do this. And I'm like, you know, I listen and I watch a lot of spotters and drivers and I've done my own stuff, and I've had those moments, of course. I've had plenty of moments where I'm like, nope, you're not correct. I'm making this move. But the amount he did it in that final 10 laps, wherever it was, and every move he made was the correct one. And I was like, damn that's confidence yeah <laughs> and i was yeah. like and so i told him i said man that was pretty amazing like you you did such an amazing job yeah i think the kp's point all you have to know is if the car becomes far more similar right as it is we all have the same information with smt and everything out there well the difference becomes you and one of the biggest things you control is your mind and you know that's the difference between you being fast or slow or whatever so KP just said it's just another tool. It's oh, just like 100%. something that you're doing on the setup of the race car. This is just involving your mind. You're just finding a way to like optimize the way you process things. I think it's. I think it would be. You know, it's almost. It's not. Yeah, it's not like a choice. It's like a requirement. Yeah. At this point, right? Yeah. Like you. You just have to be trying to get your best performance in every facet. So in every single way, right? And that's just that's human optimization and performance, and that's what. F you know, any sort of sports endeavor, competitive endeavor like this is all about. I mean, you see it even in the business world, right? With with the finance world and even the startup world and, and CEOs who have coaches these days. And, and that's a big, mar that's a huge industry now. You know, high powered C-suite people who want, they need a coach, just like a QB needs a coach. Like a, like a, yeah. they have sports, psychology, you know, they have these people that are trying to optimize their performance because, that's the game these days, right? We we know the information is out there. The tech is out there to, to measure. And so you've got to sort of lean into that or you're going to, you know, be going up against it. And that's probably a recipe for not being successful. Of course, you want to optimize your finish in the points. And we'll just get out of here on this. You kind of just mentioned it. <laughs> um, fifth place in the points is yeah, still definitely doable. Mm -hmm. uh, four races left. We got Las Vegas, Homestead, Martinsville, Phoenix. I know you told us earlier this year you ran like a thousand laps <laughs> yeah. on the simulator, both Cup and Xfinity for Phoenix, and then unfortunately you had the the qualifying crash. But prior to that, you felt really good about it. So I would presume you feel good, Phoenix. You feel good these next three tracks that there could still be a win lurking out there and maybe a top five finish in the points. Yeah, the only one that's a question mark to me is Martinsville. We were really bad there this year. Uh, all of us were. So it's like, that was a tough place. And that place has been so hit or miss for me. Yeah. I've got to figure that one out. But when I look at Vegas, you know, I think we can absolutely go contend for the win there. Same at Homestead. Martinsville, we'll see what we got. And then, I mean, Phoenix confidence level after what we did with the backup car there uh, is high, definitely. And I know what I need to do, and I know what I need to feel from the race car, and I feel very confident we can go compete. And I, I told my team, you know, I, I – I said in the interview after this, my, my sadness of not going to race for a championship for sure, you know, of getting knocked out of the playoffs, but also my 
I'm so disappointed because I've absolutely loved the intensity. Yeah, and I, the concentration I, I heard you needed. Say that. Yeah. And the pressure and, and uh Sheldon was in our meeting and was like, Man, I was so nervous at Roval. I was like, I wasn't, I was having a blast. This is awesome. <laughs> I was like Pressure is a privilege. Right? I You're loved gonna it. miss that. Yeah, right? no, Joe Logano says that and I I said that to my brother. I was like, This is so epic. Like I've been in this <laughs> position one time in my career, which was two thousand nine for the Arca Championship at Rockingham and we went out and performed in every way and, and came up one spot short of the championship, but won the race, led the most laps, did everything we had to do. I just loved that qualifying lap at the Roval, and I knew I had to just find a way to do a, a lap that was going to get us close to the top five, and did it. And I was like, that was such a cool feeling. Like the, I just loved the intensity. So I told my team, I said, look, I'm going to treat these next four like we're in this still. Like I want to measure ourselves. I want to point like we're there still. Think about it that way. Go for wins, but you know that's what's going to get us fifth in points. But I want to prepare and treat these like we're still there, so we're ready for this next year. I was sort of a proponent from the TV side for sure in terms of the content it creates, but having now gone through this, man, this is this is so unique in motorsports that I, I don't think it gets. I think people think of it as this gimmicky thing. I don't think it gets enough press as the idea of like there is nowhere in motorsports. No, I don't care in Formula One when they came down the Abu Dhabi final that they felt the pressure that we do in the NASCAR Top Series where every lap every decision every single thing you do for that week leading up and then in the car has a massive ramification and you be in a race and there's a board that's telling you points updates as you're running and you've got to decide do i want to know do i not look at that (laughs) and do that every lap and then while you're racing the guys in front of you and you're focusing on saving the tires and you're listening to your team you're trying to make the car better and you're doing all these things and it's like this is awesome (laughs) and so uh back to mindset stuff i i've i've loved it and I can't wait to be back in a playoff scenario again next year. And I, I can't wait for the uh, the pressure and intensity of the championship four. That's a cool way of looking at it. That When the playoffs were reduced in 2014, I think there was this general perception that, ah, this is going to be a lottery, three races at a time. This isn't fair. And I remember Kevin Harvick won that first championship in 14. I remember he did an interview later where he said he told Brian France, who essentially gets the credit for mm-hmm. instituting this implementing this playoff system he told brian france i didn't believe that with the pressure on that we would have to find a way to step up and that we would that drivers actually found that we always say we treat every race the same we can't race any harder we can't go any faster but when you put those types of stakes on the drivers for three races at a time in these rounds it it sounds like you're living proof of that you've experienced it firsthand (laughs) it's unbelievable it's true it's unbelievable, man. I mean, yeah, just in our small microcosm of all the teams stepping up at the Roval, you had to be per- you had to be better than perfect. You had to be exceptional yeah. to find a way into the next round. Like that is that doesn't happen in mo- that happens in rare rare moments. Abu Dhabi finale for for F1. That was the first time in twenty some odd years someone had to be exceptional on a day, right? Like somehow this. You know, I, I listened to Denny's podcast this week about the gimmicky stuff, and I get that some of the super yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. frustrating, but. Yeah. The fact is, the pressure, like the part of what makes that so intense, is because there's nothing like this. There's nothing like this in motorsports. It doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen anywhere else. It's it's the end of the Indy 500. It's the last. If there's a close battle at the Le Mans 24 hour, and in F1, it's the qualifying lap versus your teammate, and that's yeah. it. Like yeah. that's it. And so you know, NASCAR, I don't think gets enough credit. Now, do I think any other motorsports should take it? No, absolutely not. It should be stay here. It's the only motorsport in the world that should offer this. That's it. But it's 
it's uh, it's been quite an experience that I've relished and loved, and I I'm now a huge proponent of it. That's definitely a differentiator for NASCAR. And all that being said, I mean, getting this another time, I I don't I'm not really in favor of two super speedways in the playoffs either. So <laughs> I agree with Kenny, but <laughs> I I do find that one. That's <laughs> well, the only thing I could say is that you add you basically have six this year, right? So does is there some? I didn't do the math on this, but percentage wise, should there be two? I don't know. Out of those many races, I agree. It's like I love the season finale at Daytona. That was awesome. It's um, perfect. Yeah, it was it's perfect. Like, it's like one of the best moves well, NASCAR ever. has made ever. ever. Most yeah. intense, best moves ever. <laughs> two super speedways. I mean, Atlanta's changing, so that couldn't. It might not last. Maybe it's but different next year. Maybe yeah. it's different. You know, maybe the weather makes it even more tire wear and less about a pack. But yeah, that's that's. That's a lot, but maybe it's just one year. We always appreciate you being here, especially in person when I get to pull out the old podcasting yeah. gear to do this. So thanks for all your time, man. I really appreciate it. Good luck the rest of the year. Yeah, appreciate it. Going to go win some trophies, and uh, we're going to go get that big trophy in 24. Our thanks again to Parker Kligerman for joining us on the NASCAR NBC podcast. Thanks to Motorsports Manager Emily Conboy for helping set up and record the episode. The NASCAR Cup and Xfinity Series will be at Las Vegas Motor Speedway this weekend as the round of eight begins in the Xfinity and Cup Series playoffs. You can head to NBCSports.com NASCAR for all the information and schedules on how and when to watch. That's at NBCSports.com NASCAR. Also, the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship Petit Le Mans season finale takes place this Saturday at Michelin Raceway Road, Atlanta, you can find information and schedules at NBCSports.com motors on how to watch on Peacock and USA. That's at NBCSports.com motors for information. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR NBC podcast. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.